Hey folks, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to talk about, really over the next three weeks, a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's the passage of Scripture that deals with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus' interaction with her. And I think this is, you know, let, let's get back to what we're doing with this study. We're wanting to get to know Jesus. Okay? We're wanting to get to know Jesus. We're wanting to have a better understanding of who the Savior is and what he's doing in our lives and what he continues to do in our lives. Because again, we develop in our minds some concepts of Christ that we either have been taught or that we've picked up from our culture or family or whatever. And, and sometimes it, it doesn't really encompass who Jesus really is and how he acts and how he acts towards you and I. And so when we think about what we're going to talk about today, when we think about the woman at the well and Jesus' interaction with her, I, I'm going to tell you, it just blows your mind how he, what he does here. Okay? Now, let me, let me explain to you, because, all right, I was, I was trying to talk to, I was, I'm in a study on Thursday mornings, early in the morning, with a group, of, uh, a group of people out of Canada. Some of them are doctors, and so they ask questions sometimes about where I live down here. And, and I said, well, there, there's a big difference with the people here versus where they, how they are in Ontario, okay? And, and in Ontario, they're more social. Oh, George, what do you mean we're not social? Now, let me explain to you what social means there as compared to here, okay? So in our little town, when Lori and I pastored in, in Angus, Ontario, when our little town at that time, 20 years ago, there were, are you ready for this, in a town of 6,000, there were four, count them, four donut shops, okay? Now, we have a town of 7,500 near us, Clearfield. How many donut shops do they have there? One, okay. Now, four. Now, why would they have four? Is it because Canadians love donuts? No. They're actually, some of them were quite terrible, okay? It's because they enjoy getting together all the time, to connect with one another, have coffee with one another and stuff. They're very, very social with everybody. But that's not saying you're not. You are social, but here's who you're social with. I was trying to explain to them. You're social with your families, your clans. Did you understand? You're constantly getting together with each other. And maybe you'll add in there a church family. The social doesn't exist like it does in Canada, where they get together with everybody and have, invite everybody over and all that. And so I was trying to explain that to them. Now, what does that have to do with the woman at the well? All right. So I'm trying to show you the difference of how we are. So I want you to think in your mind, what kind of people would you not do anything with? You wouldn't go have a coffee with them. You wouldn't give them the time of day. What kind of people are they? It doesn't take long for you to think about it. 
Did you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like when you're going down Walmart. I do this sometimes. You go down Walmart. I do this when I see somebody and I, I got a schedule and I, I know if I see them, they're going to talk to me for 15 minutes and I don't have 15 minutes. You go, boom, down the other aisle to avoid them. Have you ever done that? I'm the only one in Clearfield County that does that, right? Now, but listen, you do that sometimes for certain people. That's called partiality. You're partial to different groups of people. Now, can I tell you something before you're like, okay, wow, George, is this going to be a really hard, I'm going to be, how bad it is for me to be that way? No, no, I want you to listen to me. That issue of partiality has existed in humanity for thousands of years. In fact, during the time of Jesus, they had the very same problem. The Jews were very partial to just hanging out with themselves and avoiding another group of people who lived in the area. And that group of people were called the Samaritans. Now I'll explain about the Samaritans here in a moment. But what we're going to see is that Jesus breaks all of those barriers to reach out to one person. Now what does that mean for you and I? He broke out through those barriers to reach you and I too, didn't he? So let's take a look at it. Today we're going to look at it. We're going to look at it over the next three weeks. We're going to look at his discussion today about living water. Okay? I've heard that before, George. I've heard that in a song. Jesus is the living water or he gives the living water. Yes. Now we're going to see what that means today. But we're also going to see and get to know Jesus here and what that implication is for you and I. So let's look at this together. It'll be up on the screen. For those of you who want to look at it on the screen or you can look at it in your own Bibles, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15. Now, again, that's page 562 in a pew Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, okay? Look with me, verse 1. Here's what John the Apostle writes. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples... He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He needed to go through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. When Jacob's now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. The woman of, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into a city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. All right, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this passage this first section of chapter 4, and we're going to really divide it up into three sections. We're going to see, first of all, a divine appointment. So this wasn't just a chance meeting. So I want you to understand that. With God, nothing happens by chance. Do you understand that? You can write that down. With God, nothing happens by chance. Then we're going to see the Lord's initiative. God's going to take the initiative here, and I need you to understand that God is not a responder to things. He is a one who takes the initiative in things. So God is taking the initiative here. And then finally, what we're going to see here is, is that we're going to see the Lord's offer. We're going to see what he offers to her, but he also offers to you and I. Okay, so let's get back to the issue of divine appointments. All right, so when you focus on verses 1 to 6, it's kind of setting things up for you here, but these six verses actually tell us a whole lot of what's going on here. So when you read the first part, it's kind of confusing at first. What in the world's going on? Listen to what the writer says. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though he himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. All right, so what's going on there, George? All right, so somehow the Lord knew, whether he was told or he knew because he was the Lord, he knew that the Pharisees, now remember who the Pharisees are. They're, they're a religious group. There were lots of religious groups, but these were a prominent group in Israel at that time. They were mainly middle class, so they had money and wealth, but they were very conservative. And so here they are, they hear that Jesus is making more disciples. Now Jesus hears that they hear. Now he decides, I'm going to do something else. Now what is going on here? Why is he doing that? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. The Lord dictates the timing of his plan. The Lord dictates the timing of his plan. Why did Jesus decide to leave? Because here's what's going to happen, folks. After chapter 4 we're going to see that the Pharisees become very antagonistic towards Jesus. They want to disprove him. They want to destroy his credibility. Why? Because they are watching Jesus become popular with all of Israel, with the people of Judea and Galilee. And when that happens, that diminishes their control, right? over society and what's right and wrong. In fact, at first, you know, they maybe were a little excited about him because we saw Nicodemus coming to visit him and find out more about him. But Jesus does things differently than the, quote, established way. 
And so he's not necessarily promoting them. And so he's decided it's time for me to leave because it's not yet ready for me to have my confrontation with them. So the first thing I need you to see is, is that the Lord dictates the timing of his plan. Now what does that got to do with you and I? All right, so here you are, you're living about your life, you're trying to have a relationship with the Lord, you're trying to follow him. You need to understand that God has a plan for you. And in that plan, he is the one who's guiding your life. Now, he gives you freedom. He allows for you to make your choices. But here's the awesome thing about God. God's plan includes, are you ready for this, your screw-ups. Now, am I the only one that messes up in life? We all do, right? Sometimes daily, right? Okay, a lot of times what we think is, how can God use me? He's got to be blown away that I can't get it under control or get this. You know, don't we think that way? Listen, folks. Psalm 37. Steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in him. Though he yet stumble... The Lord, he is not utterly cast down, for the Lord, what, upholds him with his hand. God understands your mess-ups. Listen, think for a moment. When he saved you, were you perfect? Think about that for a moment. When he reached out and touched your life, were you perfectly sinless? No. You and I had our problems, but God still what? reached out and touched our lives. So if he could choose you to use you in spite of you, he's going to keep using you in spite of you. Because why? Salvation has nothing to do with you, does it? Has everything to do with who? Jesus, the Lord. So the Lord, he's the one who takes the timing of his plan. And what we're going to see here, look at verse 4 to 6. It's interesting. Why does he say this? He needed to go through Samaria, is what the writer says. Now, the shortest way from Judea to Galilee in the north, the shortest route was through Samaria. And when you and I head somewhere, we always take the what? The shortest route, right? We want to take the shortest route because that's going to save us gas. We can save us time. Can I tell you what the common Jewish practice was? They wouldn't take the shortest route. They would actually take a longer route. They would go across the Jordan through Perea and then up over into Galilee. Why would they do that? They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. And if they went through Samaria, guess who they might meet? A Samaritan. So how do you avoid the Samaritans? You don't even go there. You avoid it like the plague, right? But here's the initiative of God. Jesus, when he's making that journey, it's time for me to go. I've got to go from, from Judea to Galilee. He says what? i got to go through Samaria. i got to go through the place that nobody else wants to go through. Why? Here it is. 
The Lord does not operate by human thinking and carrying out his purpose. He doesn't operate by human thinking. He doesn't avoid people. He's operating on his own initiative. And look, if you look at the way it's written here, verse 4 says, he needed to go. Why would he need to go? Because he's got an appointment at a well with a Samaritan woman. Isn't that awesome? That's where the Lord is. The Lord takes the initiative. So let's see what's going on here. So when we come to verse 7 through 9, look with me at verse 7 through 9. We're going to see that initiative being expressed here. Look with me, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And when the woman of Samaria, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, so let's talk about the initiative of God. So let me explain to you why there's this problem with the Samaritans. All right, so there's this animosity that exists between the Samaritans and the Jews. It goes back, are you ready for this, three to four hundred years. So for three to four hundred years, these two group of people don't like each other. Well, what, why don't they do that? Well, it goes all the way back to the time when the exiles happened. So remember, it's about uh, 2 Kings chapter 16, ch chapter 17. The Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom were made up of ten tribes of Israel. Remember, they split off after Solomon, and you had the northern kingdom of Samaria, and then you had the southern kingdom of Judah and uh, Benjamin. Well, that northern kingdom was always rebelling against the Lord, following after Baals, following after the false god. And God finally said he had enough, and he allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe them out and take them away into exile. Now, what the Assyrians did, and the Babylonians did the same thing later on, is that when they would go in, let's say the Assyrians came through and they attacked this area and people survived, they would take everybody who's left and they would say, okay, I'm, we're going to take you to South Carolina. They would plop you in South Carolina. What they would then do is say, okay, people from Kentucky are going to move here to Kerwinsville. And they would come and move into what's left there, the devastation. That's what they would do. They would move around people. Why would they do that? Create instability. They would move people because you would be ready to fight for your homeland, right? Where your ancestors are buried and so forth. So they move you. What they did was, it's, it, the story is told in 2 Kings 17, they moved a group of people from who knows where into Samaria the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were of no one sure what their ancestry or what ethnicity they were. They showed up. Of course, they were following their own gods. And at that time, because the land was pretty devastated, it was basically under control of wild animals. They were being attacked by the wild animals. And being su superstitious, 
listen to this, they sent a message to the king of Assyria saying, save us from these animals. The God of this land is angry with us and we don't know how to appease him. So the king of Assyria, who is more interested in winning battles, is like, I'm not here to settle religious disputes or questions. So what does he do? He has them look for a priest, a Hebrew Jewish priest, to send him back to teach the people there how to worship the God of Israel. So that's what they did. They got a priest, sent him back, and he taught them the law, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so those people began to worship the Lord. Now that's at the, about 100 years before the Babylonian exile happens. The Babylonian exile, if you remember, that's when Judah was taken and they go away to Babylon. Then when they come back, this is where the book of Nehemiah happens. They come back to rebuild the wall. There's a group of people there who want to help, but they're rebuffed. And then they try to stop the wall being rebuilt. And there's a guy by the name of Sanballat. Who is he? It says a Horonite, but he's a Samaritan. They wanted to rebuild the temple. We worship the same God. No, 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 that's a Jewish thing. So right then the animosity starts. And for the next several hundred years, it's tit for tat. Being upset with each other and doing things, like at one point, the Samaritans had their own temple. Guess what? The Jews destroyed that temple. Then one event happens and they're having festivals in Jerusalem. Samaritans show up, slip through the crowd, and guess what? They scatter bones in the Jewish temple, desecrating the Jewish. So there's this animosity, this feeling of hatred. So guess what? They don't want to have anything to do with them. Now do you understand? That's why you don't go through Samaria. But Jesus does. And so he's sitting by an ancient well that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And he's weary because it's noon. The sixth hour is from six in the morning, six hours, noonday, the heat of the day. He's thirsty, and a woman comes to draw a well. Now, that woman probably went to that well every day. Why? Because they didn't have running water in their houses. You'd have to go to the well every day. So here's this woman who's coming. She's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Folks, that is scandalous. That Jesus, a Jew, a devout Jew, would ask a Samaritan woman for something to drink. And she knows that, so what does she do? How is it that you're asking me for a drink of water because you guys don't have anything to do with us? So here's what I want you to see. Okay, here's what's so awesome about it. The Lord is not bound by cultural and societal boundaries. The Lord is not bound by cultural and societal boundaries. Have you ever talked to somebody about Jesus and they'll say, oh, the Lord won't have anything to do with me. He doesn't know what I'm like. Or he doesn't know what I've done. You ever had somebody tell you that? I've had numerous people tell me that. Here's the thing about it. 
They're judging themselves based by what culture says and by society says and by their assumption of what the church says. And sadly, just to be honest with you, some churches do say that. But Jesus doesn't look at that. He's not bound by that. He's not bound by the whole issue of societal and cultural boundaries. In his day, it was a boundary for a Jew to interact with a Samaritan. They wouldn't do it. But he did. In fact, isn't it interesting? He takes the initiative. Who starts the conversation here, folks? Jesus did, right? Isn't that weird? I mean, I mean, in our thinking, it would be like, weird, are you crazy? You don't talk to them. But he did because he's got something else in his mind. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The Lord does not show partiality in dealing with people. Remember I told you we tend to be partial? We tend to be partial to, in our area towards our clans, towards our family, towards people like ourselves. And that's okay. That's, that's our natural tendency. But God isn't like that. God is not partial. God doesn't show any partiality. He deals with everyone the same. Because why? He loves everyone the same. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So he loves you just as much as he loves somebody else in some other part of the world. Just as much as he loves somebody from some other social economic strata of our community. He loves you just as much as anyone else. He doesn't show any partiality. In fact, here's, here's what I want you to understand. Listen to me. He shows love to you just as much as he shows love to them. In fact, the scripture says this. If you go to the Old Testament, it talks about how it rains on the just and the unjust. Now, why would that be important in the Old Testament? Well, it's agrarian culture. They're farmers. What do they need? Rain. Okay? Especially in a place like Israel. And the reality that God shows blessing to everyone, no matter who they are, that's what we need to grasp. And so the Lord doesn't show partiality here. He's going to interact with this woman, which, by the way, that in itself is a scandal. That he would talk to a woman in this culture that he's living in? He doesn't show any partiality. So this is reinforced by the scriptures. So here's some scriptures to help you see this. Okay, so up on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is, a God, is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. And catch that next phrase, nor takes a bribe. What do you mean bribe? Well, have you ever done this? God, if you do this for me, I'll do this. That's a bribe, isn't it? He doesn't show any partiality. Okay, here it is. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. God loves you just as much as he loves anyone else. And he's going to deal with you no matter what your past is, just like anyone else. Listen, let's go on. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. 
And you masters, he's talking, here's instructions for masters and slaves. Do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master who is also, also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now there was a threat to the masters. Treat your servants right because why? God's not partial to you or to them. He shows no partiality. Wow. All right, then finally, Acts chapter 10, verse 34. And I think this is relevant to our passage here. This is Peter talking to Cornelius when God saves the Gentiles. Listen to this. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, I, in, tr in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. God's not partial to any one person. Isn't that awesome? Aren't you glad for that? Now, then notice now, here's what he does. The woman is asking a question, why are you dealing with me? And you notice the flow of the text. He doesn't answer the question, does he? Does Jesus answer the question? Look with me, folks. Look at verse 8. Excuse me, verse 10. Verse 9, she says, For the... How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? For, for the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Look at verse 10. And Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Does he answer her question? All right, let's stop for a moment. God doesn't answer all your questions. You hear me? I got lots of unanswered questions. That's just life. But here's what he does do. He always gets right to the issue. So here's what we're going to see here. All right, here's the Lord's offer. First thing I want you to see is this. If you know the gift and the giver, you would ask. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you know the gift, what's the gift? Life. Life. True life. And you know the one who's giving it. Now, what he's saying to her is, if you knew the one who was giving it, meaning he's the Messiah. Because the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah as well. So he's saying to her, if you knew the gift of life that I'm giving you, and you, if you knew who is the one who's giving it, me, the Messiah, you would ask me a question. You would ask me for that gift rather than wasting your time on this other stuff. See, here's the thing. If you knew the gift, now what is this gift of life? Now listen, I understand. I want you to hear me. Sometimes we have a, a, a small perception of eternal life. All right, listen to me. I think everybody understands what eternal life is, right? We understand that salvation is what? The forgiveness of our sins. Everybody agree with that? Salvation is what? Being with Christ later on. Everybody agree with that? But that's where most people leave it. Life is more than that. Life isn't just the forgiveness of sins and later on. Life is where? Right now. And he's saying he's giving them a gift of life, not just for what you did in the past or what's going to happen in the future, 
but for you right now. And isn't that what we're looking for? Isn't that what we strive for? Isn't that what drives us crazy? Is the dreams and the hopes and the desires that we have for a better life. For something more out of life. And then, have you noticed that sometimes when we achieve what we want in life, we're still not satisfied, right? So we go off where? Looking in some other direction. But he's going to tell them, look, if you knew who the gift, what the gift was, and if you knew who is the one who's giving it to you, you'd ask. You'd ask. You'd ask for that gift. Here's the second thing he says. Look with me. The Lord will give that which truly satisfies to the one who asks. Here's what he says. Look with me. Verse 10. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. All right. Now, it's interesting that Jesus is using water here. Why is it interesting? Well, He's at a well. Here's a woman who comes to the well every day to get her water supply. In fact, a lot of nations around the world have this same function every day. They don't have running water like we do in a house. They have a community well. And people would get their water jugs, and it's mainly the women, and they would go head out to the well every day to what? Get water for their families or water for their animals. And water is a basic of life. Can you go without water for a long period of time? No, you have to have water. Because otherwise you would what? Thirst. And eventually if you don't have any water, you what? You die. You can go without food for a long period of time, but you can't go without water. And so here he is, he's saying to her, look, if, if you really understood the gift and you understood the one who's given it to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water that truly satisfies, that satisfies your soul, that satisfies the emptiness in your life, that satisfies that hole. That's what he's talking about here. This is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's saying it to the Samaritan woman. In fact, Here's what he's saying here. Look with me at verse, again, verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. So he's talking about the water from the well. You drink from, like if, okay, so I like Kerwinsville water. Oh, you're crazy, George. I like Kerwinsville water. I just like it. I, take me somewhere else. I don't like their water. I like Kerwinsville water, okay? Must be from Anderson Creek somewhere, okay. So I like Kerwinsville water. But I'm gonna tell you something. As much as I drink the water from, the spigot, I have to chill it first, okay? I still have to keep going back because I still get what? Thirsty. You do the same thing. I use bottled water. You still have to open another bottle, right? Okay, Jesus is saying, if you drink from this water, you will thirst again. But look at what he says, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of life springing up into everlasting life. So he's talking about something more than just physical water, isn't he? 
He's talking about something spiritual here. So here's what I want you to see. He, he's going to tell you his gift will not only satisfy you, but you will never spiritually thirst again. Look, if you truly come to Jesus and you experience the life that he gives you, you're never going to thirst again. Now, what I mean by that is, is that you're not going to be like, I don't need another drink of water. I'm fully satisfied in Jesus. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something even more. It's the inner cravings of your heart. We all have them. And we try to fill them with things, don't we? So you've, sometimes you meet young people and they think, well, if I get married, then I'll be all right. Well, you get married and it still doesn't satisfy you, does it? Well, if I have kids, have lots of kids, and you what? You still aren't satisfied. Well, if I get that promotion, if I get that bigger bank account. Listen, folks, I, I've, I've read the news reports. I've, you know, we have so many billionaires in the world. Guess what they're still striving after? It's not like they've arrived, oh, I'm in a place of personal satisfaction, I've got everything I want, I don't even know how much money I have, I don't even buy things, I just tell my assistant and he buys it. I, I mean, guess what they're still wanting? More. Why? Because it's not satisfying. Jesus is saying, the gift that he has will not only satisfy you, but you will never thirst again. See, if you come to Christ and he fills your life, that's enough. You say, well, George, you know, okay, wait a minute now, but you know, I've known Jesus for a long time, but I'm still not satisfied. Yeah, I know, I've been there. And that's because I'm not looking for my contentment in what I have. I'm looking in it for something I think will bring me contentment. But it never brings you contentment, does you? You know, if I get a buck, you know, I've, I've hunted deer all these years. I've killed nothing but does. I've never, I killed a button buck one time. But you don't mount that on the wall, do you? Look at the nice nubs. You know, you don't do that. If I get a buck this year, I'll be sad. No, I won't. I won't. This is, this is reality. We're trying to, and it's right there for us as believers. It's right there. The satisfying life is right there. In fact, this is what I want. Spiritual satisfaction will produce an abundant life. That's what he's saying here. He'll produce an abundant life. When he talks about it becomes a well that springs forth out of your life, he's talking about an overflowing life. When you come to Jesus, your life overflows with what? Him. In fact, isn't that what he says a little bit later when we get to John chapter 10, verse 10? Jesus says this. It'll be up on the screen. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is what Jesus said. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Some passages will translate it 
overflowing, fulfilling. That's the life he offers you. This is where he's at. Now you say, okay, George, what do we do with this? All right, listen, listen to me. When we look at this story here about a woman who is a Samaritan, we see that God isn't bound by the stuff that we think he's bound by. And he reaches out to people where they're right at. And he gets right to the heart of the issue. And that is what? You need him. And when you come to him, he gives you life that satisfies. So if you're here this morning, two things. Number one, if you're here this morning and you're so worried about how God sees you, you need to wake up to the reality that he's not seeing you the way you think he sees you. He doesn't see you that way. He sees you through the eyes of love. That's awesome, isn't it? That's like a parent, right? I mean, when you look at your children, they don't do right all the time, right? And you don't sit around and think, well, constantly reminding them, don't you remember? Oh, you might. Don't you remember when you did this? Ha ha, but you do it every day, every moment. You did this. That's not good parenting, right? Because why? You overlook that and you what? Look at them through the eyes of what? Love. That's how the Lord is with us. Okay, that's the first one. Second thing. You know the Lord, but you're not content. You know the Lord and you're not satisfied. You're trying to find something. You're trying to find something. I'm telling you, you're overlooking what's already there. That's true satisfaction with him. Now, what does that mean, George? I've got to start coming to church more often, carry my Bible. No, no, that, that, that's religious exercise. It's not in religion that you're going to find satisfaction. That's not going to bring satisfaction. It's in the relationship with the one who loves you. And it starts with God, I've been chasing after something that won't satisfy, and all along you've been there. Can you help me get back on focus? Some of you need to hear that too. Let me pray for you.